Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. This week's episode is fairly special for a couple of reasons. For one, it's my first remote SEMcast, and I think it demonstrates that the show can still work in this new age of isolation. Second, my guest is Barry Sonnenfeld, the cinematographer who shot the Coen brothers' Blood Simple, Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing, and Penny Marshall's Big, and Rob Reiner's When Harry Met Sally in Misery, and Danny DeVito's Throw Mama from the Train, and then became a director in his own right, making the Addams Family movies, Get Shorty, and the original Men in Black trilogy, among others. I met him on the Addams Family Values Junket, and his new book, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, Memoirs of a Neurotic Filmmaker, gave us the opportunity to reconnect with his show after almost 30 years. Barry picked The Long Goodbye, Robert Altman's eccentric adaptation of Raymond Chandler's hard-boiled detective novel, which casts Elliot Gould as Chandler's old-school P.I. Philip Marlowe and drops him into the Los Angeles of 1973, a hazy dreamland of hippie fitness nuts, alcoholic literary lions, manipulative therapists, apathetic cops, and one vanished friend with a murdered wife. Naturally, Marlowe can't let that last thing go, even if it costs him everything. That's where we start. This is someone else's movie. You know, it's so easy to choose Dr. Strangelove, uh, but I thought I'd choose something a little bit more obscure. Uh, I think that The Long Goodbye is not a perfect movie, but there are so many very cool, wonderful things about it that I I just love it. Uh, So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about something that's a little less obvious. I'm really glad. Well, I mean, I'm glad because partially because Dana Gould picked Dr. Strangelove a few years ago, so that was already done. Oh, but, good. Uh, and, you know, we've done enough of these now that it is getting kind of weird when somebody, when I have to break someone's heart and it's like, well, you, somebody else already did that. But right. um, The Long Goodbye, I hadn't seen it in, I'm going to say, a good 15 years. And then I we rewatched it because Kate had never seen it. And we watched it 10 days ago, maybe. Yeah. And it's so satisfying as a, a Philip Marlowe story. And the last time I saw it, I thought it wasn't. I thought it was a subversion of Marlowe, but this time it felt, I mean, there's the the misogyny and sexism and the casual grossness of Los Angeles in the 70s, but that milieu works for Philip Marlowe. And so it slots back into, it's, I guess it's so far away now that the film, you know, it takes place 50 years ago. It was shot 50 years right. ago. And so now it's become its own artifact in a weird way that, seems to work even better for the story. You know, it's really interesting because I, I I don't remember when it came out, but I do remember hearing that Philip Marlowe fans were outraged yeah. by Elliot Gould playing Philip Marlowe. He's too sort of sloppy and, you know, uh, you know, throws things away and, uh, you know, uh, but I loved Elliot's performance in, in the movie. Um, one of the, th- I'll tell you what I, what, what my problems with it were, because sure. I want to really rave about it for the most part. I, I don't know if it was Altman's choice or the studio's choice, but there's a lot of mumbling and lines of dialogue to help the audience know things they already know. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a studio note where they said, you know, like, can you spell out curry cat food or can you, there's so many things where you, where I felt there were studio notes to try to make the audience 
like the movie more. They probably had it a recruited audience screening. And, the, you know, the people that write at the end what they liked and didn't like wrote like, I was confused or I didn't understand what he was saying. And yeah. the truth is, it doesn't matter what he's saying half the time, but you can tell there's ADR, you know, there's re-recorded mumbling dialogue to help the audience know what they already know. So that drove me crazy. And the hippie women across the way where Elliot, first of all, I didn't believe it. And I didn't believe that they're nude all the time and all that. And I also had a problem with Elliot Gould under his breath saying what we already knew, like, boy, those hippies are kind of strange. Well, yeah, you don't have (laughs) to say that. So I believe there was some really bad studio notes in there. But first of all, I personally think it's the single greatest John Williams score ever. And no one could ever, you know, he's done Star Wars and he did all the Spielberg movies. But for me, the fact that there is one theme, the long goodbye... And literally, you cut from Jim Bouton in his Ferrari, and it's jazz, and you cut into the supermarket, and the same song is playing, but it's Muzak. Uh, the doorbell at, uh, at Nina Palant and uh, Sterling Hayden's house is the same four notes, da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, yeah. It's just genius. <laughs> I, I love that so much. It's, it's great. Because it's so annoying. Like by, it, it goes from it's it's clever, then it's annoying, and then it's clever again. It just weird. It wears you down in a really fun way. And, uh, and just when you think you can't hear it ever again, there's a funeral dirge yes. in Mexico, yeah. and they're playing the long goodbye as a funeral dirge. It's just at some point you're waiting for the next moment of that song. Yeah, it is. It's the playfulness of it and the and the, the sort of the casual puncturing of how serious it's supposed to be. You know, people are dead, people are being beaten. There's 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 all this grim stuff happening. And between the music and Gould's performance, you never really worry too much about any of it. It all just feels like it's pleasant genre stuff. And and the mumbling worked for me because it replaces Marlowe's narration, right? I mean, it's the That's right. the classic hardboiled thing, which is now just this distracted stream of consciousness from someone who's trying to navigate this world and piece it together as he goes, but also doesn't really care if he has an audience for it. I mean, it, 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 no, no, that's right. The, the device of narration when you're making movies is always so difficult because who are we talking to? Why can I hear this guy's thoughts? Is this in the past? Is it right. the present? And Altman found a way that Altman and Gould, I'm assuming together, just found a way to make it fresh and weird and new. And as a result, I'm paying more attention to the details that he's muttering about. No, no, it's it's a very good point because it does substitute for voiceover. The other thing I love is how Altman will cast non-actors in key roles. And the fact that he cast Jim Bouton and when I was growing up, he was uh, a star New York Yankee pitcher, okay. uh, you know, and he wrote a book called Ball Four, but he's not an actor. He's literally a New York Yankee pitcher Then that then became a relief pitcher. But I don't think he's acted in anything before or since then, but he's perfect as uh, Terry, his, his, his friend. And uh, he Wait. literally, yeah. He wrote Ball Four? I've read Ball Four. It's one of the only baseball books I've read. 
Yep, uh, I was written <laughs> by Jim Bouton, and that was him acting in a uh, uh, Altman movie. But literally, he's just a Yankee pitcher who wrote this book. <laughs> he got in trouble writing the book because he tells tales out of school. You know, about affairs of other Yankees and all that stuff. But yeah, yeah, no, that's Jim Bouton. That's amazing. My brother is a, believe it or not, my brother is a sportscaster. He uh, calls play-by-play for the Toronto Blue Jays. And he was the one who gave me ball for, I don't know, when we were kids, probably. So in the the late 80s, maybe? Yeah, yeah. And Oh, at least maybe earlier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, maybe I was like 20 by that time when he, when he actually made me read it. But uh, he, I had no idea. And I'm not even sure he knows he's in, he probably does. He knows everything about baseball. Uh Yeah. No, and it is a weird choice um, because Terry has a strange energy, but we, I mean, we see him twice. We see him at the beginning and the end of the film. And that's right. And he's this strange specter for most of the story. So maybe that, yeah, I guess it makes sense if you have someone who doesn't feel like an actor just appear and then disappear, kind of floats around the, the edges of the movie. Well, he's got great hair and he looks like <laughs> a bit of a smart alecky asshole a little bit, you know, I, I think he was perfect. And, you know, there are lines that uh, the Cohen brothers and myself still use to this day. Oh, yeah. One of them is her I love, you I don't even like. It's, it may be the single most violent scene in any movie because it's truly unexpected. And we're talking about Mark Rydell's girlfriend. Yeah. Asked for, uh, she says she's thirsty. And uh, they're, uh, they're interviewing uh, Mark Rydell and his thugs have come to Elliot Gould's house. And one of the thugs goes in the refrigerator and finds a Coke bottle with like an inch of Coke left in it. And uh, Rydell uh, drinks it and then takes a Coke bottle and smashes it across his girlfriend's face, Joanne, hmm. um, and says, and, you know, there's blood everywhere. And yeah, it's it a horrific moment. It's a horrific moment. And then he says to Elliot Gould, because he thinks Elliot Gould is hiding this money, he says to Elliot Gould, her I love. You, I don't even like. Find the money, cheapy. And it's just fantastic because it's, it, it really says to Gould, you better find the money because I did that to her, you know? Yeah. I like the way that it, I mean, it's a horrible moment and it's, it's again, it's part of that larger texture of misogyny that runs through the entire film where women are either really bad or really victimized or both i suppose um which is which is appropriate to the world that it's set in and and you know chandler's books are all filled with you know femme fatale and and victims and innocence but yeah there's something about the way that it isn't just tossed off as a joke that we see her again repeatedly and she is badly hurt uh she's in the car bleeding she's pressing cloths to her face later we see her bandaged it's it's ugly in a way that I don't know that I mean I read some of the reviews uh, caught up to it subsequently and and people right. did not like right. this movie they didn't know how to take it at the time but but right. that ugliness that willingness to confront the material and really show you how bad this would be I think it's it's something that makes it distinct from almost every other noir adaptation up to that point because they were all fairly clean in their their morality you know that there were anti-heroes and there were there was good there was evil but you never saw the casualties the way you, that we see them here. I think part of what 
people didn't like about the movie is it's very gray. It's not black and white. Mm. It's very funny in its violence. I mean, literally the last time you see Joanne, she's got all these bandages on, on her face and it's horrific. And Mark Rydell, who's brilliant in, in the show, without any hint of irony says, you remember when Joanne became ill? Yeah. I mean, the phrase became ill. No, you hit her in the face with a Coke bottle. She didn't become ill, but it's so hilarious because no one's being funny. And for me, uh, you know, I've only directed comedies. And for me, the secret to comedies, and I really think the problem for some people is that The Long Goodbye is both a comedy and a noir movie. Sure. The Coens do that, by the way. They they can mix, and, and they pull it off wonderfully. But... Uh, I I think the secret to comedies is that no one in your comedy should know they're working on a comedy. Right. Not the actors, not the director, not the cinematographer, not the film lab. Uh, and that's what makes it funny. And what makes, uh, for me, The Long Goodbye very funny, even though it's not a comedy, is that no one's playing it for laughs, but there's some very funny moments in it like you remember when Joanne became ill yeah. is sickly funny and there are many others like that um, I also love Sterling Hayden's performance in fact I must have seen The Long Goodbye in film school because there was a period of about three years of my life where I became an Aquavit drinker <laughs> which is uh, oh, it's which his is beverage of choice it's horrible yeah I had it once. It's basically rye, you know. It's like rye, caraway seeds mm-hmm. that infuse vodka, so it tastes like you're drinking rye bread. Uh, yeah. Well, you know what? They call it a Danish uh, uh, Bloody Mary, is if you use Aquavit instead of vodka. Give it a try this weekend. That could actually work. Or this work. afternoon. No, I could see that working. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Hayden. Well, I mean, you'd mentioned Doctor Strangelove, and, and in both cases, Sterling Hayden is giving these incredible comic performances that do not read as comedy. Um, That's right. I mean, here That's he's right. basically playing Hemingway, but worse, I guess. Yeah, yeah, right. A bigger drinker, if that's possible. No, he's bigger than life. He's got the big beard. And do you, did you know that uh, Sterling Hayden was Spielberg's first choice? Oh, yeah. For Jaws? For Quint, yeah. He and was going to play Quint. do you know Quint. why he turned it down? Because he just did this, I assume. No, no, no. Sterling Hayden loves the water. In fact, it's very hard to find, but Sterling Hayden wrote an amazing book, perhaps better than Moby Dick, called Voyage. It's about 800 pages long. It's it's a seafaring novel in like the 1800s or something. It's fantastic. And he loved the water so much. He loved the sea, he loved the ocean, and he said to Spielberg, I don't ever want to go to work in the ocean, and I don't want to ruin my love of the sea by working on your movie, because I'd have to be in the water, and instead of loving it, it would become a chore. And that's why he turned down the uh, Robert Shaw part in uh and Jaws. I had not heard that story. I mean, I knew he turned it down, but I didn't know why. Yeah. What? Yeah. Okay, he had principles. He had principles. He loved the water, and he didn't want to ruin it. 
Oh, I mean, he does spend a little time in the water here, but it's... That's true. You know, it's stunt double stuff for the most part, I think. Or it could be. That moment when the dog uh, comes out of the water with Sterling Hayden's cane is uh, devastating. Just devastating. Yeah. It's, again, it's that thing where all of a sudden it, you know, it was funny for a minute especially the way it's shot where he's just walks out in the middle of the two shot in the, through the window, which right. apparently was a nightmare to stage, but just so beautiful to watch. Yeah. And yeah. so it's funny and weird at the same time. And then you realize, Oh no, he's not coming back. Like that's what this is about. Right. And it just, yeah, the, the dog, Oh, I mean, anything where a dog tries to help and gets it wrong. It's just really, it's funny yeah, no, and sad no. at the same time. Uh, I don't know if this is true or not. I suspect it is, but I heard that Vilmos Zygmunt, although there's an op- camera operator that has credit on on the show, I heard that he operated his own camera on that show, and it seems like he did because sometimes, you know, camera operators are usually very nervous about the shot. Mm. And if the director and the cinematographer line up the shot and say it should be a two shot even if the uh the the actor misses a mark and you've got a a single person and only part of the other person's nose the camera operator will never say well this isn't working i'm just going to pan right and make it a single right he'll try to make it a really bad two shot because that's what he was told to do well in the long goodbye the camera operating is so fluid and relaxed and ignores the intended shot. There's a shot where, you know, Sterling, I think it's uh, Elliot Gould and Nina Van Plant walk through frame and in the background there happens to be a boat out the window and instead of following the actors, the camera zooms in on the boat. Believe me, that was not staged that way. It would have taken all day to do that sure, one. Sure, yeah. Move the boat back to one, you know. And I think that he just, that Vilmos, and I could be wrong, sort of had this very fluid, relaxed attitude about the framing. And I, I'm sure that Altman encouraged that because that's sort of Altman's style, you know, with... Uh, sound overlap and dialogue overlap. Uh, I, I I found that the shooting very um, undisciplined in a good way. Yeah, well, and it something about that more almost more than anything else. Maybe Mash uh, Mash certainly has the same energy to it. Yeah, you're right. But, but right. the long goodbye because of the fact that it's contemporary for for its shoot, that feels to me like they just brought the camera to Los Angeles and found the story happening in front of them. There, there's this, it's not documentary, it's curiosity. And I just found it so compelling and so odd that, uh, that you could make a so movie right. like this. You could make a major hey, did, studio film. Did, did Zygmunt shoot, the lo- uh, shoot MASH? I don't think so. I want to say no. I know he did McCabe and Mrs. Miller... Yeah, I thought was it the was the first time they worked together, Brewster McCloud? That can't be right. I'm just going to look this up right now because otherwise I'll stammer yeah. and forget. No, their first uh, their first collaboration was McCabe and Mrs. Miller, right? And then he shot Images, Long Goodbye, and uh, yeah, and then he started working with Spielberg and De Palma. Yeah. I mean, it I, I I cannot reconcile 
in my mind that the guy who shot this movie shot Close Encounters, which is just the most beautiful, formal, static, and, and not static in a bad way, just the, the use of lockdown camera in that is incredible. And yeah. this, and the deer hunter. I mean, he just did everything that the 70s are his. No, no, Zygmunt, uh, and, and you know what? He really did change his, not only his framing style and his fluidity of motion for Spielberg, but also, you know, all the Altman stuff has layers and layers of smoke and diffusion. And we, uh, my wife and I were watching The Long Goodbye again last night so I could sound vaguely intelligent or as <laughs> intelligent as they can sound. And she, she was just going on and on about how strangely diffused and kind of ugly it is, and it, and it kind of is. It's very desaturated, and you you compare that to, you know, uh, Close Encounters, which is totally saturated and full of nature and blues, and it's uh, he's uh, Zygmunt is amazing how he was able to adapt to the camera. Uh, to the director he was working with, which is not always the case. Sure, yeah. I mean, just what he did with... I mean, even what he did in McCabe and Mrs. Miller is radically different from The Long Goodbye. McCabe is in love with grain and texture and light, and this is smog and noise and, and busyness. I mean, even just the the sequence in the in the street in Los Angeles where Marlowe is chasing a car that just... Chasing, yeah. Just kind of goes a little bit further ahead. Is she screwing with him or is it just happening? Uh that is like it it feels dangerous in a way that I was worried about the camera operator, I was worried about the cars, I was worried about Gould. Yeah. And then of course it pays off in him actually getting hit in a way that we don't see. Just they, right. they cut around the stunt because there's no stunt right. guy. Because there's no stunt guy so they you hear a screech and then you put Elliot on top of the hood. Rolling off a car, yeah. Rolling off of a car. But you're right, it's so sloppy and it's so messy that it seems incredibly real uh, and uh, and it, it's, it's really, I mean, all those shots, especially in a Malibu colony where you're seeing reflections in the glass mm-hmm. and all that, and I couldn't figure out if they're double exposures or if it's really set up that way because I thought the zooming in on Elliot and Nina were at a different pace than the zoom in on Elliot uh, Gould, who's at the water. I, I can't figure out how they did it, but there's something going on there. I've also never seen waves in Malibu that were as big as those waves that were taking uh, Sterling Hayden to his death. Did that seem unusual for Malibu for you? Or I've only ever driven past it. So, uh, well, uh, I mean, the go. beach is big and intimidating, and I can believe that if you shoot it, you know, like if you know when the big season is... Does that happen? Does Malibu? Malibu doesn't have a monsoon season. No, and by the way, doesn't the Pacific Ocean, isn't the definition of the word Pacific like calm? So anyway. I but, wonder uh, about that. I, I, did, I did love, I did love the movie. Now let me ask you this. The very end when Elliot Gould is walking away, having done what he had to do by going to Mexico. Sure. That last shot so reminded me of one of my other favorite movies, which is um, The Third Man. Yeah. You know, where, where he's, uh, Joseph Cotton is walking and the leaves, the trees are covering and he walks 
by and passes a girl who he's in love with. I always wondered if there was this third man thing there or if it was just that it was a beautiful place to shoot. Um, I suspect the second thing, but... I, given Altman's, you know, the playfulness that he shows in the whole movie and the fact that this is in a way, you know, it's wasn't... Wait, hang on. If I'm getting this right, wasn't the book written around the same time The Third Man would have come out? Like the late 40s, early 50s? Oh, is that true? I think so. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I'm pretty sure Altman was... He knew what he was doing, if nothing else. It's just a, right. a, a lovely little grace note. And, you know, it's not as direct as the Coens lifting the opening of Long Goodbye for Lebowski. But they're right. sort of hand right. in hand in a, in a longer tradition of connection. We stole a lot. Uh, Joel and I, you know, I shot the first three Coen Brothers movies, Bloods oh, in Arizona and Mills Crossing. And it's before we started any of those three movies, we always watched the same two movies. It was like our rule, but it had nothing to do with how we were going to shoot it or anything. We always watched Strange Love and The Conformist. Okay. Weirdly, in The Conformist, we did steal some of the stuff from The Conformist. You know, this all the woods stuff with Totoro. Yeah. The woods is very The Conformist. And in fact, there's a shot where Mike Starr is going to uh, urinate on a tree and before he does he blows on his hands to warm his hands up because he's going to unzip himself and touch his penis and that's totally right out of the uh, conformist the same thing happens in the con- the conformist near the end of the conformist but huh. we'll steal your occasional thing and you know uh, Miller's Crossing in some ways is based on some of the Hammett stuff actually yeah. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, but, uh, uh, anyway, uh, it's an unusual movie. It didn't get good reviews, uh, The Long Goodbye. No, the people hated it, which uh, surprises me now. I mean, it, it's funny. Again, I went through this wave of, and I think it was when the, when MGM, this is going to date me, when MGM released the Altmans on Laserdisc in widescreen for the first time, and people actually had a chance to see them after 10 years of pan and scan on, on VHS. Right. I, I gorged on them. I saw them all. And yeah. The Long Goodbye, it made sense that they wouldn't have liked it because it was such a departure from everything else he'd done. But I didn't think that it would be rejected by the public in the way that it was. Mm-hmm. Like People did not like it, and MGM pulled it and re-released it. Or United Artists, sorry. Um, right. Which is, again, something that almost never happened. It happened with Bonnie and Clyde, and it was immediately re-embraced as a classic. The Long Goodbye didn't get as lucky. Right. You know... People, people have problems with tone. Mm. Uh, and the worst is when you change tone in the middle of a movie. This doesn't do that. But one example, uh, there was a movie that Will Smith was in called Hancock. And the first, I told Will this, the first two thirds of that movie are so good and so funny. And I loved it. And then the last 20 minutes becomes this green, dark, violent thing. And it changes tone. And audiences don't like change of tone. I always also told Will that within Bad Boys 2, I haven't seen Bad Boys 3, within Bad Boys 2, which was like two and a half hours long. Oh, yeah. And they invade Cuba. Yes. There is a brilliant 90-minute comedy hiding in this two-and-a-half-hour, overly violent, decapitations, heads rolling, 
but that if I were ever given uh, Bad Boys 2 and was allowed to re-edit it, I could make a great 90-minute comedy. And I think the problem with The Long Goodbye, although it's very consistent in tone, the audience just didn't buy the tone. They either want a comedy or they want their detective show. You know, yeah. and this wasn't that. This was very Altman. You know, it 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 it's not black and white, and and I think audiences. But I'm surprised critics didn't like it more. Yeah, it struck me that he's not doing anything different for himself, right? If you knew That's who right. he was, if you'd seen Mash, and only even if you'd only seen Mash and McCabe, and if you were a film critic in the early '70s, how could you not have? It's right. pretty clear that this fits into that continuum. Maybe not Brewster McCloud so much, because that's just a weird mm-hmm. film that was hard to sell and hard to explain. But yeah. those two and this, it's like, oh, this is his version of a detective story. The same way that's right. MASH was his version of a service comedy and, and McCabe is his version of a Western. It, it's right. not a hard leap to make, and yet people just flat out rejected it. You know, what he does is really hard, because the truth is, the single job of a director is consistency of tone. Figure out the tone and every decision you make as a director is in service to that tone. What's amazing about Altman is his tone is really unique because mm-hmm. you're reminding me, MASH is an out and out comedy, but there's some horrifying, really sad and things involving death and and war, yet he pulls it off. And that's really hard to do. And I I think he did it in in Long Goodbye, and I think others didn't. Hey, what did Pauline Kael think about the movie? Do you remember? Uh, I was looking for that review, actually, and I I think she liked it because she was always, she always got Altman, and she was always in his corner. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Um, she called it a heady, whirling sideshow of a movie set in the early 70s L.A. of the stone sensibility, which, yeah, that's pretty much right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she got the it. The problem um, with Pauline's rev- a lot of times I, she doesn't use enough commas, and I never know where I'm supposed to stop, where I'm supposed <laughs> to pause. Yeah, I, I actually take comfort in that because I've been accused of using too many commas, but it's how you help oh, no. guide. No, there's no such thing as too many commas, and the more commas you use, the more it's you trying to control the reader to know when to listen to your intonation, because you're writing that damn thing. So I encourage you, the more commas, the better. All right, I'm going to tell people you said that. You'll back me up to my editors. It's, yeah, and the semicolon, too. I love semicolons. I just used one. Um, And... uh, (laughs) It's, yeah, Kale, well, but Kale, at least when she got behind something, it didn't matter how many words she was supposed to write. She would just gush about something. She would really rhapsodize yeah. about it. And yeah, even that couldn't get people to go see The Long Goodbye. No, no, no. Um, were you, in general, did you like it more than you thought you remembered liking it when you saw it recently? This time or through. Is it about the same? Yeah. Uh, I think I liked it. I liked it as much, the, the misogyny... Not it's. I don't even know if it's misogyny. So many of Altman's films have dated that way. They are sexist. Yeah, they're yeah. not necessarily misogynistic, but they're sexist. This yeah. one's also chauvinist. So maybe that's it. Yeah. I mean, you know, everybody forgets just how 
hideously humiliating the shower scene is in MASH when Kellerman is is exposed and sent running through the, the camp, right? It just right. at the time people laughed at that. That was a huge laugh for that movie. Yeah. And now it's just like, yeah. oh wow, boy, she really you know, first of all, wow, she really trusted Altman. Secondly, he thought that was funny. Third, it played. That's really uncomfortable and weird. The stuff in the long goodbye seems more self-aware just because it's hard-boiled detective novel stuff that would translate strangely into 1973. But it right. jumped out at me this time. Yeah, the nudity, as you mentioned, that the yoga, the yoga retreat, or the, yeah, are they yeah. a cult? Are they, are they lovers? Are they just really strange? And this time through, I was making the excuse in my mind that this is a translation of how Marlowe sees them because he doesn't understand them exactly. He likes them. He doesn't ogle them the way literally everyone else who comes by his apartment does. So it, right. it places him as the last white knight in this world of deteriorating values and, and moral decay. And I get it, but at the same time, we're seeing a lot of women's chests. Like, we're just, the camera is enjoying this, as, even though we're not supposed to. And truthfully, uh, I love your your theory, which is that Marlowe likes them just as people and doesn't ogle them and says, you want, I'm going to the grocery store, do you need anything? But it's so clunky. Yeah. It's so bad. The the looping, the additional dialogue put in there, it's just, so, I wish we could cut it out and re-release it because you you needed so little of it. And, he, and the camera stays there too long and they're a little too close sometimes and it's unnecessary. And it's of the era, but boy, it's so cringeworthy yeah. to watch it now. It's unfortunate. Yeah, It's gratuitous in a way not a lot of his things are. That's, I think that's, that's what stands out. The violence makes sense in here. The drinking makes sense. The swearing when it happens is contextual. The nudity is weird. Like, it's weird and uncomfortable. It's weird and uncomfortable. On the other hand... Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger looked good. Yeah, that was with something. His shirt off. <laughs> that was something I was trying to process as well. Uh, you realize because yeah. at first I thought one of the other hoods was Tom Berenger, the one who follows right. Marlowe around. It's not him. I double checked. It's not. But it looks yeah. like him, and it's really jarring. And then right. Arnold Schwarzenegger shows up, and there is no question that that is Arnold Schwarzenegger. That is uh, that is Arnold. Uh, the thing that amazed me in the first three minutes of that movie was how unbelievably good that cat was. And it's really <laughs> hard to train cats. And I'll tell you why. Dogs can be trained because they love praise and they love food. Sure. Cats don't care about food. They don't <laughs> care about praise. And to get a cat to sniff food and not eat it, I'm amazed. Or to have a cat jump on his shoulder on... I was... Like, right now, if you were saying, Barry, you have to make... Remake the long goodbye exactly the same way, I'd say, that's okay, but I want a computer graphic cat because I'm not going to spend... <laughs> and also, there are no inserts. That was really Elliot Gould in yeah. those shots. So it's not like you give it to second unit and you say you have four days... Please get a shot of the cat not eating the food. I mean, Allman is so perverse, he'll pan down from Elliot Gould onto the cat, which really means that they had to get it right in that shot. So to me, I was just 
in so, so much awe <laughs> watching the cat work in that movie. It was unbelievable. I was a little distracted. I mean, this is 20 years before laser pointers. There was nothing you could use. There was nothing you could use, nothing you could erase. You couldn't have wires that you got rid of. Also, I was also impressed because Strike Anywhere matches are really hard to get right the first time. Mm -hmm. And in every single take that he even used a Strike Anywhere match going into the um, supermarket on plexiglass, which is almost impossible to get the match to light. And he was a master of getting those Strike Anywhere matches to light because throughout the, the, the movie... Yeah. He's, he's constantly, you know, smoking and doing a good job. But I was very impressed with the cat and the strike anywhere matches work. Yeah, it is. And it's also weirdly, it feels anachronistic, right? It's something that I don't think people do. Well, I've never seen it in other 70s movies unless it's deliberately a thing. It just, yeah. it's another way of connecting him to the past and this casual disregard for police stations and people's homes that he's just running around snapping matches on everything. You keep waiting for him to do it on someone's face. No, exactly. And by the way, it's not a Zippo. Yeah. It's not any other kind of lighter. It's literally a strike anywhere match. And it is so natural and so part of his being that it becomes sort of like, I usually hate props whenever an actor says, oh, can I uh, have a... Can I have a pen to click? I go, no, you can't. I remember on Raising Arizona, Nick Cage insisted he wanted a shoehorn. And I said, okay, this is going to be a mess. And there's actually an insert that the Coens gave Nick of him putting on a pair of shoes with this very long shoehorn. But usually props are something that bad actors want to give themselves something to do. But boy, Elliot Gould's prop of those Strike Anywhere matches, and those cigarettes. Also, it was an incredibly ugly car that he drove. Yeah, well, I mean, it's vintage, right? Like, he brought it with him from the 50s somehow. Yeah, but it's not even like a cool vintage car. You know, they, they had beautiful convertibles. <laughs> but it's like Altman found the most disgusting, over-fat, over and the lines weren't good, and it was it was pretty... Because it was vintage, but boy, it was not a good-looking convertible. Yeah. Well, again, right? He sticks out in in Los Angeles, where everyone That's is right. obsessed with being uh, au courant and and in the perfect fashion and styled within an inch of their lives. Like Nina Van Plant goes through six different, seven different radical outfits over the course of her right. first two scenes. I think it just it's right, it's amazing right. to see that that fashion plate sensibility contrasted with Gould, who kind of wore a tie that day. Right, but but he, then he's like totally into his tie, and he's yeah. always wearing his tie. When he goes to rescue, uh, what's uh, uh, Sterling Hayden in the water? He literally he takes it takes off, yeah. his tie and says, "Hold my tie," which I thought was like half a step too far to tell you the truth, because <laughs> it makes you think this is a joke. If anyone wanted to save someone and they're wearing a suit with a jacket and a wallet and car keys. The thing you don't do is say, hold my tie. Yeah. So I thought that was actually a little over the top. Uh, but Altman sets up the tie thing and that Elliot loves to wear a tie. And listen, I always wore a tie. Um, from the time I was a production assistant, I always wore a tie 
because A, I felt like I was going to work, and B, I wanted the producers to say, let's get that kid who wore a tie. Yeah, the clean kid. You know, so the clean kid. So even today, when I direct, I always wear a tie. Just, I mean, Sam Raimi wears a suit. I was going to say, yeah. That's his thing. Yeah, but I... Yeah, but I would rip too many pair of... I, I run into things and I <laughs> rip things all the time because they're, on sets there are always nails and screws and rods sticking out. But uh, for me, it's a tie. It's a little safer than uh, wearing suits. I get that. I, I wondered yeah. in the film if maybe the tie thing was a drowning man would strangle you with your tie by accident. But that's, pre- that's just me trying to make meaning out of something. That's lovely. <laughs> this is what I do. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> I I I do love that Elliot Gould's car was of another era. Even it's not only an, anachronistic, but it's bad anachronistic. Yeah. It's 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 so who he is. He's just stepped into. He's twenty years behind where he should be in the world, and I I love that about the movie. Yeah. And now it feels like its own period piece, as we were saying, just because it captures something about Los Angeles that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Uh, I even like that all the lights were mercury vapor instead of sodium vapor. I love that blue. When I was a DP, I used to always replace all the sodium vapor lights in any shots we we would see in New York with mercury vapor, because that blue green is beautiful. And that yellow green of uh, sodium vapor is a really ugly light. It, it removes all the color and saturation from, from anything. But I, I, loved, I loved the way it looked of an era. It really did. It's a, and it's a gorgeous restoration too. That Just the fact that this thing is back now in a high definition version that, that looks good uh, as opposed to the grainy, greasy versions that circulated before where it just looked like people were smoking in the developing room somehow. Oh, crap. I should, you know, I looked at it on my DVD version, and I don't have the Blu-ray version. And I really wonder if a lot of what Sweetie was complaining about was a DVD transfer and not Vilmos's work. That's interesting. It's possible. If it's the MGM disc, it was not ideal. It's the MGM disc. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's of an era, right? The, the, the masters hadn't gotten as sophisticated as they are now. And this is my other nerdy thing. I used to review uh, home video stuff, and you can watch transfers improve through, you know, VHS and Laserdisc, DVD to HD masters to Blu-ray. And right. even now, I'm, I picked something up in the UK that was clearly made from a, a TV transfer. Like a, it was a high-def transfer, but it was sourced for television, and it just it wasn't given right. the love that it could have been given. But the long goodbye looks gorgeous in both of the UK and US Blu-rays. So if anyone's listening, buy that one now. You know what I use a, a fair amount now is, uh, have you ever seen any stuff with a Kaleidoscape? No, what's that? Kaleidoscape is a company that remasters movies and you then own a server, like a six or eight or 10 terabyte server, and you buy uh, movies for about the same price as a Blu-ray, you know, between 20 and 30 bucks. And it, it then downloads over the internet. Mm-hmm. And you can't, unfortunately, you can't uh, start screening it until the whole movie is uh, downloaded. But they're super UHD quality. They're all better than 4K. And the sound is unbelievable. The really? sound separation 
and it's called Kaleidoscape. Uh, the server is about six grand to own, and and then you uh, buy the the. Uh, but then you own this library, and instead of having sixteen hundred DVD cases behind you, well, you have a small. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. And it's beautiful, I, I admit, but. Uh, Kaleidoscape is really good, and the sound quality and the sound separation is extraordinary. Although, while we're on it, and I know that Altman was totally into sound, Mm -hmm. one of my pet peeves, which has nothing to do with Altman, but has to do with new movies, I think that sound mixers are now separating the sound too much. I think I'm looking at a screen, I want to be immersed in that screen. And when I hear someone knock on a door behind me in my own screening room, it takes me out of the movie or the television show. And I'm always, I I work with the great, greatest mixer. His name's Paul Otteson. He's been nominated for four Academy Awards. He did Hurt Locker. He did all these, he's won many Academy Awards. And I'm always saying to Paul, narrow, narrow down the sound because they all want to now, because they, because they can, yeah. and there's Atmos and all these other things, because, I, because you can, that doesn't mean you should. <laughs> and to me, there's the screen. I'm not projecting off the screen. I'm not projecting on the walls. Why am I hearing sound from behind me. So anyway, it's my own pet peeve. I'm sure I'm in the minority, but I don't like it. I I mean, I know that I am hearing way more specificity than I need to a lot of times these days. Uh, I was right. seeing and from the wrong place. Yeah, or it's just and, and once you you know when you translate something from a 64 speaker Atmos Web or whatever they call it, the field to a room with a sound bar or maybe I've got, you know, Dolby Surround, I've got four or five different rear speakers. Just like it gets too specific at home. Yeah. I I do like subwoofers, but I mean, Altman, what he did was he did amazing things with overlapping dialogue. Yeah. As muddy as it was, it was clarity. You could hear and understand what you needed to hear and understand. And everyone was mic'd. So everyone wore lavaliers and everyone was mic'd because normally if, if you have overlapping sound but no one's, not everyone is mic'd, you can't use it because the off-camera person is invading the on-camera person's sound right. and you then have to dub it. And what happens is, is because you don't want overlapping sound, it takes some of that immediate urgency and energy from the way people really talk. And Altman, what he did is he had everyone mic'd so everyone can talk over anyone else. And there is this reality and wonderful urgency to his dialogue and the way he directs these movies. That's unusual. Well, yeah. And famously, he wouldn't tell people when the camera would be on them, right? So everyone is giving the full performance all the time. Nobody's holding anything back for a close-up. I don't believe that that really works. No? Uh, no. And no one holds back for their close-up. And you know what? And the director's job is to make sure that the actor gives you what you need. And I don't think you need to trick actors. I think that a good actor is a good actor. And I don't buy that one bit. Really? 
They, yeah, yeah, I don't. They printed the legend. They printed the legend. I mean, I believe you. You're the one more likely to have actually experienced these situations. Well, it's I direct on, in a different way. My, my direction is always... Um, I never talk to the actors about their backstory or anything like that. I just say, do one twice as fast. <laughs> My theory is, if actors are forced to talk fast enough, uh, it prevents them from being able to act. Okay. And all you want is to see no acting. You just and you know Kubrick was famous for doing a hundred takes of everything, and the reason he did a hundred takes was to get the actors so bored. Yeah, wear them down. So wear them down so that they're just saying the lines without a performance. And I could have saved Stanley 99 <laughs> takes by just saying to Stanley, just make him talk faster, Stanley. <laughs> Did you get the Coens to do this? Because it sounds like something they've been using lately. Uh, you know, uh, it's funny. If you ever are really bored and have nothing to do, uh, Joel and Ethan and I worked on the Criterion release of Blood Simple. It's, mm-hmm. And, and we, we actually erased all the lights that were in the shots because I was a terrible camera operator. And, uh, you know, uh, tr- dolly tracks and lights and all that. But we did a commentary underneath the movie where basically we made fun of each other the whole time. They made fun of my lighting and my camera operating. I made fun of their directing and the way they directed the actors. And it's pretty funny because we're just really mean to each other. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, they, you know, um, they believe like I believe that if if actors talk fast enough, it, it, it takes out away their ability to act. And that's always a good thing. You're just closer to the truth. Yeah, yeah. I can see it. Um, well, before we get to the final question, I did want to ask you about the book, which is the reason we're talking, because uh, Bob sure. was kind enough to bring it to my attention. It is not about movies, exactly, as I understand it. So, yeah. How, how did that come about? The first half of the book is about my youth and my uh, narcissistic parents and how bad my mother was as a cook. And it's, uh, and it's pretty funny uh, the second half of the book, uh, I get into uh, Blood Simple and uh, a little bit of about Big. I was the cameraman on Big. I was fired after a week of shooting when uh, uh, Tango and Cash. I was a DP for a week. There's a million stories about that movie that I would love to collect someday in a proper oral history. Who did you? Who were you directing it for? No, no, no. I, I, I was a cinematographer. Yeah. Uh, Andre Konchalovsky. So, okay, so you were shooting for Konchalovsky. Yeah, and it lasted a week. Uh, <laughs> and there's a chapter about that. And then a couple of chapters about uh, not the making of, but the trying to make uh, Get Shorty. It took us six years to make Get Shorty. So the first half is about my youth. The second half is sort of horror and funny stories about uh, some of my experiences in, in the film business. But what happened is I live in Telluride and my neighbor here is Jerry Seinfeld. And so Jerry and his wife and their kids come up during, they come only during the holiday season. Sweetie and I live here year round, but they'll come up over Christmas, New Year's and I, I'm a member of the Academy, so I get all the screeners. 
So we were watching movies and Jerry would always hear my horror stories about making the third Men in Black, the one with Josh Brolin, right. where he plays young Tommy Lee Jones. Between the producers and the studio and not having a script, and one Christmas day, Jerry came up to my house and said, you know what, you should think about doing stand-up. And I said, really, Jerry, why? And he said, you're totally on your own. No one tells you what to do. You fail or you succeed on your own. Uh, no one gives you orders. And I think you'd really like it. And I said, well, aren't I too old to start a career in stand-up? And he said, oh, you're way too old. You won't make any money doing it, but you might have fun. So I thought about that and decided, well, I don't want to do that. But <laughs> I, could write, I could write a book. I could write my memoir. And in a way... It's what Jerry was saying, which is no one's telling me what to do. I'm on my own. Yes, it was an editor, but I basically, I'm going to fail or succeed based on my own. No one's telling me write a chapter about your mother's food or, or about Andre Kontrolovsky. By the way, Don Peterman was hired to shoot Tango and Cash. He quit two weeks before Tango and Cash started. I was hired with only two weeks of prep. I lasted one week and then got fired. And then Don Thorne came in. And all three DPs, Don Peterman, Don Thorne, and me, were all represented by uh, the Gersh Agency. So they just kept getting more and more uh, uh, commission checks. But it was a nightmare. Just a nightmare. God, it's such a strange film. That That is one of those where you see it and it feels like it escaped. And then you find out about its production and you learn, oh, it did. It actually did. None of it makes sense. It's just... It's- I don't know how they're still not shooting it. I mean, <laughs> literally. Uh, you know, I uh, on the first day of pre-production with only two weeks ago, I'll just tell you the, this one story. Please. So I'm, I'm, I'm brought in. And I, and I said, hey, listen, you know, I know you guys have been on this movie for four months and this is my first day, but let me ask you a question. You know, in the scene, which I think is not in the movie, in the scene, Stallone and Kurt Russell, and by the way, Kurt Russell is a fantastic guy. I loved my week working with Kurt. Stallone and Kurt are in the back of the largest airplane in the world. The Russians were letting Konchalovsky have their biggest cargo plane for one night. And we were going to shoot at Burbank Airport. And Stallone and, and uh, Kurt Russell have to drive off the back of the plane, you know, with the cargo door open. And as the plane takes off, they drive off the back of it. And I said, hey, listen, this is my first day and I'm sure you've worked all this out, but what's blue screen and what's real? And do we even know if the runway at Burbank is long enough for this Antonov 225 mirror to take off? And can it take off with the cargo door down? And even if it can, can it come come around and land and... For take two, how long do we have to wait to get it back into... I asked, like, and I said, look, these are all dumb questions. And you've been on this show for 
months. And how do you get a Jeep to drive off the plane while it's taxing? You know all the answers, but can you just talk me through it? Yeah. And John Peters, a producer, looked at Andre Konchalowski after I asked a million dumb but smart questions and said, what about a really great chase inside a quarry? And and uh, Sly could drive like a Caterpillar D9 and, and Kurt could drive one of those big dump trucks. Literally, as I'm sitting there, they totally change the entire big chase scene. And they go, and it would be like a really great chase scene. And I'm thinking, those trucks drive at like a tenth of a mile an hour. There's no great chasing. And, and, and uh, John Peters says, so what do you think, Sonnenfeld? And I go, great, because I know I'm going to get fired before I ever have to. And I think they went like 26 weeks of shooting. Oh it was insanity. It was a disaster. I, I have described it to people as a movie fueled entirely by cocaine, and it's the only way that it makes sense. Well, damn, if I had known that, I would have stayed on the show. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I I cannot tell you how happy this story has made me. Um, Oh, good, good. And yeah, I mean, we met, we were talking before the, we started recording. We, I I was on the, I did the press junket for Adam's Family Values. We met in 94 and you were telling stories about your mom paging you at a concert. I think it was. Well, the book title is called Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother. Yeah which is based on a true incident that uh, on January 28th, uh, 1970, at 2.20 in the morning at Madison Square Garden, it was the first Peace concert, and there was Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the cast of Hair, and Harry Belafonte, and Jimi Hendrix was warming up for the second time, and he was about to start, and at 2.20 in the morning came the announcement, Barry Sonnenfeld, call your mother, <laughs> Because I was supposed to be home at 2, and it was 2.20. So she was very precise. Well, she was very protective. <laughs> and let's just say that. And of course, because I stood up after the announcement, oh. I had announced that I was Barry Sonnenfeld. So that chant, as only Madison Square Garden can give you, a <laughs> Barry, Barry, started to head towards Jimmy. Jimmy got a a song and a half out before he left the stage. (sighs) So, uh, yeah, that's the title. The title of my book is based on that incident I told you in 1994 called... And and by the way, the the mother in the first Adams family was my mother, sort of like this manipulative, horrible person who, like, makes Fester miserable. So this is your exorcism. This is, uh, this, I got it all out. Believe me, I kept nothing inside. But uh, mom and dad are both dead, uh, so there's <laughs> oh, nothing. God. But truthfully, I would have been happy for them to read it. Really? Yeah, because it's so mean to them. I see. I was going to say, I suppose there must be some affection, but clearly you've, you've found your peace. Uh, the second to last chapter, I, I, I softened just enough so that people won't hate me for being so mean to them. <laughs> I get that. Uh, well, thank you so much. And before we go, I did want to ask, is there anything specifically from The Long Goodbye that you have lifted or referenced or stolen or, or just incorporated into your own work? Absolutely. The, uh, well, in my life, not so much in my work, but in my life, 
once a month you will hear me say to someone, her I love, you I don't even like. Right. There's another moment that I think is slightly too self-conscious, but I really love where, uh, who plays the doctor who is on laughing? Oh, uh, Henry Gibson, Henry Gibson. Henry Gibson slaps uh, Sterling Hayden and Hayden, while he's circling in place, says, um, 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 I'm all turned around as he's turning around. And I wonder if people get it or not. I personally love it, but it's very self-conscious. But for me, what I stole from that movie is two things. One is her I love, you I don't even like. And then the other thing I kind of, I don't know if I stole it, but the other thing that I adored, which we've talked about, is the singularity of John Williams' score. Mm-hmm. And to this day, when, when I talk to composers, and I've worked with some great composers, James Newton Howard and uh, Danny Elfman and uh, Jim on the last three seasons of a series of unfortunate events and Nick Urata, I love very minimal themes. I love that pick two or three themes and repeat them throughout. I don't like scores that have many, many, many different sort of uh, musical themes. Mm-hmm. So, and I think part of that came from how much I love The Long Goodbye and how literally using just one theme, he somehow manages to make it sad, make it funny, make it scary, uh, make it romantic. So uh, that's the other thing I took away. But mainly it's her I love, you I don't even like. Find the money, cheapy. Cheapy is such a weird dismissive insult too, isn't it? Isn't it? It's so. And Mark Rydell is brilliant in that movie. Just brilliant as a Jewish gangster. Yeah, he didn't uh, act too and, much, did he? I mean, he did, and then no, he just No, he stopped. was a director. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he directed The Rose. Sure, sure, sure. in fact, Vilmos Zygmunt shot The Rose. I was in graduate film school, and I remember leaving film school about nine o'clock that night and seeing a generator and a light, but no crew. Okay. And I walked another block and there was a generator and a light. And I walked another block and there was a generator and a light. And then I walked another block and they were shooting at the uh, my local East Village police station on 5th Street between uh, 1st and Avenue A. But I was thinking, how amazing is it? How great is it that a real movie can have lights blocks away that are nowhere near where you're actually shooting? But he was lighting up distant things and all that. And I thought, someday if I become a famous cinematographer, I'm going to have many generators and lights many blocks away so I can be like Vilmos Zygmunt. (laughs) And I did. I mean, I, had, I didn't become like Vilmos, but I had lights many blocks away from where I was shooting. I think you did okay. I did okay. I'm, a, I'm much more of a wide-angle guy. No one shoots with wider lenses than I do. <laughs> so Vilmos was not a wide-angle guy. He was a, a zoom lens guy and a close-up uh, and a long lens guy, which is easy. Anyone can shoot that way. What's hard is wide-angle lenses, just so you know. My thanks to Barry Sonnenfeld, whose new book, Barry Sonnenfeld, Call Your Mother, is available at bookstores everywhere. Thanks also to Lauren Passell. She knows what she did. 
You can find Barry on Twitter at Barry Sonnenfeld, all one word, though I'm not sure he still knows that account exists. And you can find The Long Goodbye on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber in North America and Arrow Video in the UK. Both of those discs offer excellent restorations. It's also available on iTunes and streaming for free on Hoopla, although I think both of those are using the older MGM Master. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where in addition to writing about movies sometimes, I'm also hosting the new podcast Now What?, where I interview Torontonians about our weird new normal of self-isolation and COVID-19. You can find it Tuesdays and Fridays in your podcatcher of choice, and of course you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. Our theme song is by the last year, so if you like it or the show in general, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been listening. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. As I've been saying for a while now, Jordan Heath-Rowling's The Big Story is essential listening these days. Thanks for your support, and thanks for sticking around. Stay inside, watch movies. I'll see you next week.